Salo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Ways from RNZ Pacific. Oloingoa Ususana Suisuiki. Coming up. Damage to water source, uh, fear of contamination due to most alarm sliding, good number of houses, also a damage. At least 20,000 affected by Solomon's quakes, reports of people living in fear of further quakes. Also, we're extremely concerned about what this court case um, and the conviction represents. Amnesty International condemns conviction of high-profile Fiji lawyer Richard Naidu. And later on... It will mean that we'll have traded loss and damage, money we wish we didn't have to ask for, in exchange for the true ability to remain in our countries and our homes. At COP27 last week, the creation of a loss and damage fund was celebrated as a victory, but at what cost? At least 20,000 people in remote communities in Solomon Islands have been seriously impacted by the series of earthquakes that struck off the south coast of Guadalcanal yesterday afternoon, the largest, a magnitude 7 on the Richter scale. Disaster management officials for the province have confirmed reports of tidal surges, landslides, collapsed and damaged houses, huge cracks in the ground and people still living in fear of further tremors. Provincial Disaster Officer James Teva is working with the National Emergency Operations Centre to try and get help to the affected communities. Thank you. Uh, the the wards that are directly affected, Chavule Ward, Tangarare Ward, Wandra Bay and Dui Dui Ward. And about how many how many people would you estimate or families uh, um, would that constitute? Uh, at the moment, uh, the data that we have uh, it's not yet revised, but it's almost 20,000 people that are affected. And and what kind of impacts uh, have you been hearing about? The, the report received by the Disaster Office of the Gorokono Province, uh, we have received reports from water source, uh, damage to water source, uh, fear of contamination due to most land sliding, because most areas they use uh, fresh water, fresh water stream from the river. So a lot of uh, landsliding beside the river, so they fear using the river for drinking. And also some water source also are affected directly from landslide. And uh, almost all the villages, a good number of houses also are damaged. Also a report that we received in those wards, uh, most villages, they, they still uh, live in fear because uh, there is a trench, uh, a lot of in the villages, yeah. yeah, that does sound very scary. Um, I know these some of these communities are quite remote. How, how long do you think before you can reach them? The only means of assistance is uh, by boat or ship or uh, helicopter. So OBN could uh, take almost uh, two hours from Onyara. OBN, a ship could take about Yes, there's no road access yeah. from the capital, is yeah. there? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, at at this stage, what is what is the plan? Are you planning to working with the EOC to get out there, or trying to get more information to determine what's needed to take over? Yeah, thank you. Uh, due to resource gap that we have at the moment, uh, the process, the government process, is uh, the first speed of meeting that uh, we will have this afternoon, and that is from there we start uh, the planning, the planning process, and which is the deployment and uh, areas need support. Uh, from that meeting, we can capture all the staff so that 
we can uh, plan for the response of our deployment. Thank you, Thomas. Th- thank you, James, for your time. Um, Tingim kam you fala lo place we affected and uh, all the best lowaka and bang fala check come back maybe what time a good time for check come back. It was two days. Let's say today is a first meeting. Tomorrow could be a deployment. Then assessment another day. Then it could be on Friday. It's okay. Okay. Thank you, Thomas, okay. James. Thank you for time yeah. and all the best lowaka. Yeah, thank you for calling and thank you for showing interest for interview. Thank you. A high-profile Fiji lawyer, Richard Naidu, has been convicted of concept of court by the Suva High Court. The conviction relates to a comment that Naidu made on Facebook in which he pointed out a spelling mistake in a court decision. This sparked a complaint by Attorney General Ayaz Syed Kayum. Amnesty International has condemned the decision by the Suva High Court in Fiji as a violation of freedom of speech. RNZ Pacific's Finau Funua spoke with Amnesty International Pacific researcher Kate Schutze. What are your views on the judgment issued for Richard Naidu's contempt of court case? We're extremely concerned about what this court case um, and the conviction represents. We've already called on the Attorney General to drop the charges against Richard Naidu because the original post on social media that these allegations relate to, um, I mean, essentially it's just a violation of freedom of expression. And we say, you know, the court should not be above scrutiny. Um, You know, they don't require special protection. And it is really alarming to see the government act in this way to suppress um, the right to freedom of expression, expressly so close to elections. And considering that Mr Naidu has been vocal of the Fijian government and was to contest the election. Does the timing of this case raise questions? It is obviously going to have a chilling effect um, on what politicians and candidates feel like they can say in terms of criticising government and government policy. But essentially this case highlights that the Fiji government has a vast arsenal of tools which they can use to suppress freedom of expression. And this is just one in a pattern of many cases we've seen over the years that, you know, do have that really chilling effect in terms of what people can and can't say in Fiji without repercussions. Also, does this trend indicate that there's still a separation of powers within the judiciary and government? I think that's a difficult one to comment on because, I mean, the charges never should have been laid in the first place. Um, They're relying on archaic common law um, charges of scandalising the court, which has been repealed in the UK where it originated, um, purely for the reason that it doesn't meet the international human rights standards on freedom of expression. So there were lots of actions that the government um, could have taken at various points. Um, You know, they could have decided not to prosecute. Um, You know, the courts could have decided not to convict. Um, But the reality is that um, now that they've done this, it's sort of really shown that they're prepared to, um, you know, go this far in terms of prosecuting people where they don't like what they say. Does this set a, uh, a precedence um, for more cases like this? Um, what does this mean for Fiji going forward um, for freedom of speech? I think it's really alarming because, I mean, obviously the circumstances of this case um, highlight the absurdity of the charges. Someone pointed out a spelling mistake on social media in the court judgment. 
And so the response of the court is to impose hefty fines and possibly imprisonment for that. It just seems so wildly disproportionate to what has happened here and what comments were made. Um, you know, that's not to say that you have to agree with those comments in order to stand by and protect the right to freedom of expression. So we're saying that we stand by Richard Naidu and his right to um, make comments that are critical of government, including critical of the judiciary, um, because that's what the right to freedom of expression is. The Papua New Guinea government is this week set to present its 2023 national budget and across the country there is an expectation of increased commitments in critical areas. In the wake of an horrendously violent and lawless election in June and July, there have been calls for substantial changes to be made. Will the government deliver? Can it afford to? Don Wiseman spoke with our PNG correspondent Scott Wyde about people's hopes and expectations. I guess one of the biggest things that the Papua New Guineans who came through the elections would be expecting is some, at least some support to the Electoral Commission to fix the problems that are already there. And, and the problems are wide-ranging, you know, from the ability of the Electoral Commission to carry out elections, uh, as well as law and order in, the, in various provinces. And we've seen the deterioration of it in the elections very prominent. So those are the things that many Papua New Guineans will be looking for in the budget. The other thing they'll be looking for is relief in terms of high costs of goods, uh, high costs of food, fuel, uh, and, and a lot of these issues are not directly in the control of uh, the PNG economy. You know, they're influenced by external factors. So the PNG economy took a hit during COVID and then that was compounded by the Ukraine war, Russia-Ukraine war. So the PNG economy is reeling from all those effects, including the inefficiencies within the government system itself. One of the things, of course, with the Electoral Commission, as you mentioned, there hadn't been a census in a long time or an effective census. And that has to be a critical area that's looked at. And that is an expensive process. Yes. Observers will be looking for some commitment, at least some financial commitment from the government, at least on paper, as well as in action. So there will be, and there's a budget lockup expected to happen. That issue will be brought up, I'm sure, uh, as is usually the case with other other issues that are of importance. For PNG, it's a huge obstacle, all of these challenges, because the country has very little money available. It's already in significant debt. So what will they do about it? Where will the government turn for this money? Yeah, that, that's a difficult question going forward. And over the last two, three years, the government has tried as much as possible to reopen and open new mines like the Wafi Goldpool project has been on the top of the list of priorities to uh, at least get it moving, uh, as well as the reopening of Pogra. And the government's come under a lot of stress over the reopening of Pogra, both from landowners, both from the opposition and, and from the company itself. So all of that put together is a very potent mix for a potential failure in, in, in future. So that, that's what the government's looking towards beyond the budget. So this is what people are expecting and what people are hoping for. What expectation do you have that the government will actually deliver it? The Prime Minister's made a statement, you know, before he left for APEC and and also the Treasurer has kind of reinforced that message that there will really be no surprises. It's budget that will maintain 
what we had in 2021. They, there may be tweaks here and there. I'm not too sure where the tweaks will be. But according to the Prime Minister, it's a rural budget and they'll be focusing on, on the programs, uh, infrastructure programs that they began in 2021 or in, in 2020. So he's ex- Expecting that there'll be no tax reviews, and that's a big one for Papua New Guinea observers will be who are watching for at least some tax relief. There'll be also people looking for some relief to the high cost of fuel because if you reduce fuel costs, if the fuel costs go up, it affects a whole chain of events. You now, starting from costs of goods in the highlands and in the islands, because that's where you know the, the goods where the longest distances are for goods and services to go to. Yes. The government has a requirement to keep its debt level within a certain limit. I know that that's been exceeded in recent times and it probably is going to be exceeded a lot more with this new budget, isn't it? Yeah. In in 2021, uh, Treasurer Ling Stuckey made a statement in Parliament during the handing down of the 2022 budget and he said, we've brought down that level to under 40%. So that is also one thing that we'll be watching when the government hands down the budget, whether it goes beyond 35, 36% or stays under 40%, as Treasurer Ling Stuckey said. It was a bittersweet moment for the Pacific when the COP27 president brought down the gavel to confirm an agreement on a hard-fought deal to create a loss and damage fund. It's a historic breakthrough, as for the first time in three decades, the richest and worst carbon-polluting countries have acknowledged the need to contribute to the cost of the climate loss and damage that developing nations have to incur. However, Pacific leaders have voiced their concerns on whether COP27 is a true success for the Pacific. Our reporter Rachel Nath, who has been covering the conference, has this report. The urgency for a collective effort to make meaningful progress on emission reduction and overall ambition was not reached. Inia permanent representative of PLOW to the United Nations, said a lack of urgency will result in a loss of homes for small islands and millions being displaced. Egypt will not be a true victory if we roll back efforts to keep 1.5 degrees alive. For countries like Palau, it will mean that we will have traded loss and damage, money we wish we didn't have to ask for, in exchange for the true ability to remain in our countries and our homes. And we don't want that hollow victory. An emotional Pacific climate advocate on loss and damage, Sevilla Pinu, called COP27 a missed opportunity for a truly successful conference. It is regrettable that we haven't achieved an equal success in our attempt to achieve the 1.5 target. It is regrettable that we haven't got strong language included in the cover decision before us on phasing out fossil fuel. It is regrettable that we haven't got text on peaking of emissions before 2025. It is regrettable that we haven't managed to get stronger mention of methane reduction, emissions reductions target. 
Climate envoy for the Marshall Islands, Katie Jetney Kijuna, labelled the two weeks of negotiations as a failure. I am deeply disappointed that we have failed to reflect this fact. This outcome was not enough. If we are to stay within that limit that matters so much to us, we must phase out fossil fuels and we must do so now. A representative from Papua New Guinea said there was an immediate need for strong political commitment now rather than more rhetorics. All parties must recognize the latest scientific findings that current actions and commitments as reflected in the NDCs are not aligned with the achievement of the Paris Agreement goals. This is indeed most concerning and must be addressed urgently, and we need strong political commitment now rather than mere rhetoric. New Zealand has also thrown its support behind the Pacific. Climate change minister James Shaw said countries were still in denial. My, my experience this week has been that there are still parties who are stuck in a state of denial or delusion about the scientific reality of the climate crisis that is already gripping us, uh, not just in the most vulnerable countries, but all around the world. For Pacific leaders, the attention now needs to turn to Dubai for more meaningful progress. That's Pacific Ways for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHa, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Love it, Manuele Paul.